We are into podcast number 41, and on the podcast today we have Robin. Robin's calling us from the far side of the planet over in Ireland, and we're going to be talking today a little bit about the Irish Coast Guard and about D4H. Welcome to the podcast, Robin. Hey, how's things? Great. How are you doing? All good. All good. So you're uh, sitting in Ireland right now, I take it? Yep, uh, sitting in Ireland, um, we've a, a fairly unique office. I don't know if you've seen it, Mark. We're based in a lighthouse. Oh, that would be awesome! So you're kind of looking right over the coast, then. Yep, we've almost 360 degrees, about um, about 355 degrees of sea around us, and a, a road down to the lighthouse, and we're out in Dublin Bay, um, and that's that's where we we uh, have the main office for D4H. Um, uh, yep, east coast of Ireland. East coast of Ireland. I'll actually be over in the UK in the end of April. Maybe I should swing by and say hello. <laughs> yeah, you can drop over to Europe in Ireland. Yeah, to Europe and Ireland. <laughs> I understand that, yeah. All right, so to start with, um, Irish Coast Guard. There's going to be a lot of people that listen to the podcast that you know, understand that there is an Irish Coast Guard, but probably don't know a lot about it. So you've been uh, volunteering with them, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, so I'm I'm probably 16, 17 years now uh, with the Irish Coast Guard, and it was it was through my sort of volunteering with that that I I came up with the concept of what D4H would be to manage a local rescue team. Um, the um, the Irish Coast Guard is around a thousand volunteers around the coast, split into around 45 teams around Ireland, um, and we provide a, a boat, cliff, and search missing person search uh, service as a frontline emergency response uh, for for missing people um, or uh, people in, in distress on the coasts or cliffs or beaches. Well, that's interesting. So. You're talking a little bit of rope rescue or high angle rescue out on the cliffs then as well. That's it. Yeah. So primarily the unit I'm with is a is in a is a cliff unit. So it's our, our main sort of tasking uh, that we do. Um, people tend to be, you know, it's a mix of unfortunately despondents who are who are looking to get lost up there, um, or or have an accident, um, and a mix of tourists who, rather than fall, often try and climb up from a cove or a beach below and get crag fast. Uh, thinking they're taking a good way up so it's, it's kind of a mix of of mid cliff rescue um so go down with a strop um so we've a, a, a rigging system that will will lower in a climber with a strop uh, mid and do a pickoff um or um it might be to go down with a stretcher recover a a body uh, or an injured person um either mid cliff or in an inaccessible uh, cove so it's, it's a mix of things Typically, we're dealing with very heavy loads on that. It's we've got to haul them. Most of the time, we have to haul them back up to the to the cliff top. Um, so we're dealing with you know a, a 250 kilogram or heavier rescue load, with stretcher rescuer and and casualty being hauled up. Um, and we're using grass stakes at the top because a lot of the cliff tops would be um, there'd be no uh, sort of natural anchors there. We'd be putting in stakes. So um, it's an interesting system uh, having to go back to the top every time. Yeah, that is really interesting. I mean, I guess you don't really think of it much, but yeah, people are going to come in off the coves or whatnot and climb themselves out. Do you stay fairly busy with that with the team? Yeah, we we probably do two call outs a week on average. Um, so it is fairly busy. Um, now, they're a mix. They're not all cliff. Uh, we, we train every 10 days. 
so last night, for example, we were out and we picked a really narrow spot of the cliff walk. So maybe only two meters um, of space to work in um, to to do a, a, a climb below and pull a casualty off. Um, so um, we kind of try and put ourselves into a few tricky situations, either very tight working space or very poor ground anchors and different things to try and make it interesting for people. Now, in regards to the equipment or, that you're using for that, um, are you using mostly like UK style equipment, your DMM, ISC, or using more European, Petzl, Kong, or are you also using some North American equipment like a CMC or a Harkin type devices? So it's, it's pretty much all Petzl equipment at the moment. So um, the current version of the system is using IDs as the primary device. So we'd have, it's a, um, a dual low parallel uh, rope rescue system. So we'll have two IDs loaded uh, in parallel uh, and lower the, the rescuer on that, or uh, we'll actually turn those into one end of a, of a block and tackle system and we'll haul up through the ID as well. Now the ID is obviously not perfect for that. There's quite a lot of friction in it, but the idea of the system isn't to be technically the best system. The idea is that we can take somebody who's volunteering their time with really no background in, in heights rescue and in a very short space of time, bring them up to a what we call like a rigging standard. So they know how to set the system up uh, they can operate the IDs as a part of a clifftop team. And then a slightly more experienced climber will also will often descend, but we can get that clifftop team to be made up of, of local people with very little experience. Um, so that that's what the aim is. It's as few devices and as little complexity as possible um, is what we're trying to achieve. And that's really important. I think a lot of people look at teams or they look online and see pictures of people going and doing different things and they don't realize that, I mean, as an example, we were teaching in our fire department and one of the guys was like, oh, you know, there's a better way to do this. And I said to him, better subjective, because no matter what we do here, we have to make sure the other 200 people that aren't in this room also understand it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that simplicity of making sure that everybody can do it is huge when it comes to large organizations. Exactly. Um, and, you know, it's very important in, a, in that as well that, um, you know, it's all the pieces of good. When, when you're taking people who <clears throat> they're effectively coming in with no background in this at all, you know, and then they're getting involved in rescues using the equipment, that everything is just very simple, mapped out, process driven, uh, good change management, all the pieces around ensuring that, you know, we, we can assume that, you know, as, a, as experienced people in it, that everyone knows that a slightly different um, connector or buckle or something that you'd assume how it's used and, and people aren't aware of those dangers or changes and things without that knowledge. So it's interesting to be part of a system like that. Um, you know, I went into it initially with just sort of mountaineering background and all recreational equipment and uh, absolutely shocked at the start of why are we carrying all this heavy gear? Can we not just rig it this way? Um, and, you know, you come round to that, that more industrial rope access thinking of uh, it's a it's a totally different game. No, absolutely. Now, being the Coast Guard, I take it you get out on the water sometimes? Mm -hmm. Yep. So uh, we operate uh, quite a lot of boats around the country as well. Um, in, in our station, we've got a, a 7.9 meter rib. Um, so 
typically typically in the station I'm in, uh, we'd be a more of a reserve boat, so it's not first response, but it would go out on safety patrols, water, um, checking that people are complying with life jacket legislation. Uh, we're then available as a rescue asset as needed. So we get called anywhere at that point once we're out in the water. Um, Ireland is supported very heavily by the RNLI, the lifeboat, uh, who are a charity. Um, and they will, and, and a lot of independent lifeboats as well, independent charities, but they operate a lot of the first response where, where I live. Um, but on the West Coast, you go out there and it's completely different. It's mainly Coast Guard boats. So the, the, the Coast Guard is a government, um, part of the, the government department of transport. Um, so all the costs are funded uh, and people volunteer, people on the front line, excluding the helicopter crews and pilots, which actually with CHC um, out, of, out of Canada. Uh, so CHC operate the helicopters, winch crew, paramedics. Uh, we have full-time control room staff, full-time management, uh, full-time trainers. Uh, um, and then uh, everyone on the front line is on the ground or boats or cliffs is, is all local volunteers. Hmm. That's an interesting, um, an interesting kind of way of setting that up are you having issues with volunteerism in ireland i know like a lot of the volunteer fire departments in british columbia for instance are starting to have problems recruiting members just because mm-hmm. of the you know time that's being put on them are you, is volunteerism yeah. still okay there or yeah it is i mean you, i think you have to the, the hard thing you'll always get volunteers the hard thing is getting the right people um, and good people who are who are suited for it um, you know, we've learned the hard way over the years around you train people up and you lose them straight away. Um, we're, we're and this is just locally. I, I can't speak for the national organization in any form, but but locally, um, you know, we we live near a big city. We live near the capital, Dublin. Uh, what we're trying to do is is really find people who are working out in the local village that we're from. So they're, they're within minutes of the Coast Guard station um, to respond. And that that's hard. To get the right people to do that um but you know i mean um the the worst thing is training somebody up and then they and it's volunteers training them so we're putting all that time in and then the, then they've got something more interesting to go off and do so we make it very clear to people locally that look this is a 10-year commitment uh, we're going to put a lot into you we're going to pass a lot of knowledge on to you and we need you for these incidents you know it's going to be 40 50 times a year we need you to leave things to come to us uh, for an incident um uh, and you know it works well and we have a very good crew there now uh, who are very passionate about it yeah, that's interesting other- you mentioned the uh, 40 to 50 incidents a year because i volunteer for a local search and rescue team and they're running 50 60 incidents mm-hmm. a year and it seems to be outside of you know the the bigger you know, busier rescue teams. That seems to be a kind of a norm pretty much everywhere now in these smaller communities is that you're going out, you know, four times sort of thing a month. Just, yep. you know, there's that much activity, that much tourism, oh, that so, many people that yeah. are doing this. So, so actually we do 80 to 100 in our team, but we'd expect people to attend 50% of that. It's kind of where we, sure. if they're not making 50% of it, we're, we're starting to ask questions and it is a lot. I mean, um, certainly I, uh, I'm the deputy officer in charge. So uh, whenever the officer in charge isn't on the duty phone, I've got that. And yeah, you know, it, it's busy twice a week. You'll get an incident. We'll have training every 10 days. We'll have a local uh, school visit or a water safety visit. Um, we'll have some operational readiness assessment going on. We've got, you know, all the maintenance of the equipment. It, it, it's a lot. 
um, going on. I guess that's a good place to segue when you start talking about the qualifications and maintaining that and maintaining equipment into D4H and coming from the background that we've talked about, I can kind of see, you know, I've worked with D4H for quite a few years now where a lot of this, you know, pieces of D4H, which is actually up on my screen in the background, kind of came from. And it's obviously been heavily influenced by your time in the Coast Guard, I would assume. Yeah, absolutely. So so the Irish Coast Guard have their own bespoke system for this. Um, but before they did, I was looking at, at all of these sort of issues that we had locally in a base. So it's what do you need to manage a team of people who are going to respond? And the focus was on readiness around that. So um, what you're looking at is how do I know who's ready to respond? Are they certified and experienced to respond? Um, same across the equipment. Is it ready to respond? Is it maintained? Is it repaired? Has it been inspected? And trying to give a green traffic light, a traffic signal, as to the readiness of a team. And what we can do with D4H is, is step that up a level and look across an, a whole organization. So where you are in BC, uh, British Columbia Search and Rescue would use D4H for every search and rescue team. I think there's about 85 of them. And we can give them at the parent at EMBC, Emergency Management BC level, a green, amber or red traffic signal on are these teams ready to respond? Well, that's interesting. I mean, that's a level I don't see. I mean, obviously, I play with D4H on the Ronin side. We've been using it. I'm going to go and say long time. seven years, eight years, maybe. Yeah, at least. Yeah, yeah. And um, in regards to. SAR, I mean, I'm a volunteer SAR member and we obviously use it here, but I didn't realize that that parent level existed mm -hmm. where they could oversee multiple teams. That's very interesting. Exactly. So if you're if you're an organization, now, a lot of these are rescue organizations or special operations based that we deal with. So we might take all of the hazmat teams in a state um, all of the emergency management county uh, agencies in a state. And uh, they can all feed back their, kind of they're using the software to manage themselves locally without really, like you, realizing that in the background, uh, their parent organization is able to determine their state of readiness. So um, the parent organization is setting all the taxonomies, equipment typing, categories of, of qualifications and what this all means at that level. And we sort of step them through that as an implementation to, to get that view um, of readiness. Uh, and then the accounts go out to all of the teams. They get a really usable web application for managing a rescue team or a special operations team or an emergency management agency. Um, mobile apps and the web app to do their personnel and equipment and incident reporting. And in the background, that their parent is, is seeing all of this on maps and in charts and visualizations. Huh. I guess back it up a bit. What's your background? Like where did, how did you figure out how to do, I guess there's a lot of computer coding here and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I studied um, engineering, I guess, like software engineering and uh, digital media in university and um, I literally was on my first ever job which they they posted me to London and then on to Singapore and I was sitting in a, a in a corporate rental apartment in Singapore uh, writing this software that I knew would be useful for rescue teams and I just was on search and rescue forums was the initial kind of piece and 
contacted a few people and do you want to try this out and what do you think and um it just grew legs and and ran and we we sort of spent i mean the description uh, i think we're going 12 11 12 years now and the first two three years were literally me and my bedroom kind of company you know just building some software and almost giving it away for i mean pretty much for free for most of that and uh we got enough search and rescue teams using it paying a kind of volunteer price um that i was able to leave my job um and and we were, we were i was up and running as a company and then we got a first fire department uh, come along and say we'd like to use this for our fire department and I thought, geez this is great sure how much will that be six times the price <laughs> 10 <laughs> times the price i have no idea um and we started charging them and just more and more um departments fire special ops law enforcement special ops just kept ticking in um, and that that kind of we, we just grew down the east coast of the US in hazmat and emergency management. Um, and recently that's that's tipped over into SWAT teams. We do a lot of SWAT teams, public order units, um, you know, riot, riot squads, uh, bomb squads. We do a lot of now as well. Um, pretty much anything in that government and public safety uh, space in the in the last two years, then. There's been kind of this change then over to a little bit of corporate crisis. So we launched a new product called Incident Management, which is a real-time platform for managing uh, an incident management team really to step through their ICS uh, aims in Australia, SIMS in New Zealand. They're every every kind of region has their own uh, pla- the sort of version of ICS. Um, and so we built this generic incident management team, real-time hub, um, and that's just flown in corporate. So now... We're doing, you know, some of the case studies we'd have are, are things like uh, Subsea 7, a very large underwater engineering firm. They're managing all of their fleet of ships and all the emergencies on them. Um, we've got uh, Toll Helicopters, Toll Group in Australia, a huge logistics company. They're running all the air ambulances for New South Wales. All that, all that kind of goes through our, our platforms now. So, you know, it, that's just taken off. Um, and I think the software is now in use in over 30 countries. 100,000 emergency responders on it, recording millions of hours a year. Wow, that's crazy. That was going to be one of my next questions is, I mean, I remember meeting with you. I don't even remember where we were drinking beer. I mean, I would be really remiss to, I I can see the bar, I can picture it, but I can't tell you which (laughs) city it's in anymore, which is probably your and mine travel schedule combined. But I I feel kind of honored now being at the the plank end of this where you've got a lot of people in this use now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, it, it, it's going very well. And typically, you know, what happens is we get a couple of, you know, it often can even start with volunteer teams in a region and they pick up a few copies of it and they think this is great. And then they've got, you know, typically who does a volunteer search and rescue team attract? Well, it's people running uh, with an interest in this in their corporate or um you know, commercial life as well in their job. And so they come to us and say, well, I'm a safety manager in this company or I'm I, you know, I own a uh, rescue standby company, <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, they 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 um they say, can I use it for my work as well? And we send them over a few case studies, and they realize that you know there's a much bigger picture there behind the company. Right on. Oh, I know within our organization, I mean, we do have full time staff, but there's a lot of staff that are police, fire, military, either mm-hmm. retired, or current, yep. that are working. And I would say probably 10% of the organization uses D4H 
at some level in some other aspect of what they're doing, whether that be volunteer SAR, public order units with fire departments, special operations teams with fire departments. So it's interesting how a lot of it is uh, interlinked at this point. Yeah, yeah, um, really is across the board. So um, I'd like to break into a couple things here because I know what we do with it, but sometimes, you know, as I just noticed about the parent organization, I don't have all the uh, 10,000 foot view on this. Mm-hmm. One of the things we find really useful is qualifications. And the reason we find it useful is we do a lot of sites where we have to provide qualifications and we use the qual cards out of D4H for members going on that site to ensure that they have, you know, the basic safety training, that they have their rescue training when the last time they had an update was. And from a corporate point of view for us to be able to log in there or even have our team leader on site log in there, hit, you know, create qual card and email that to a client that they're standing in front of you know because sometimes we get to these sites and it's like oh by the way we forgot to mention that we need all of this for you to walk through the door it becomes really easy and as we get um you know some complicated sites or you get into some of these safety management systems to be able to just throw that down actually for us you know you have to enter it in obviously but it does create a a great deal of benefit on the back end. Uh, just have you talk quickly about the qualification end of that. Yeah, absolutely. So so one of the big features we have in qualifications are uh, what we call expectations. So you set up groups of members. So you might have like you know your rigging group, your manager's group, or by rank, or specialities, capabilities, all these kind of different things, uh, deployable staff, whatever it is. So you set up all your, your personnel into groups, and then you can set expectations against groups. So I can say, if you're deployable, you must have manual handling. You must have a medical cert. You must have these, your, you know, all these annual fitness, uh, all of these different pieces. Um, if if you're a rigger, you must pass this qualification once a year. So so you can build these expectations into it. And what D4H does is it proactively monitors all these requirements. It tells you how many people you have available with that certificate on any day. Uh, lets you look up a day in the future. Maybe you you've got a job on and see who's qualified on that day in their role. Um, so it it gives you this foresight into when when you need to uh, both organize and budget for uh, refreshers on training, um, collect up paperwork again, um, and and put all that together to be compliant. No, that's really interesting. And I mean, you hit on a couple things there that I'll just segue across is. Uh, like some of those groups and expectations, you can email people via those groups as well, which we've also found useful so that we're not flooding people's inboxes with, hey, everybody, I need, you know, four level three rope access technicians, or I need three guys that can parachute. I can just go to the guys with the parachuting quals or the girls that are rope access level threes and just click on that and just email them directly, which has been a fairly powerful tool for our managers. Yep, for sure. Have you have you got the text messaging set up? No, we don't on this end. It's something we should probably look at. Yeah, so you, you can add in Twilio, uh, which will do like super cheap text messaging to those groups as well. Huh. See, look at that. That's just why we chat because <laughs> I, I, I have I'm learning stuff here as well. Um, I also wanted to delve into the equipment end of it a little bit. Um, once again, from a corporate point of view, 
this is we've had to really dig down this year and do our equipment and it's no other reason that our accountants finally gotten choked with us and said i actually need a real list of gear that you guys own yeah. <laughs> and um it's been pretty good like we've entered in now uh with sprat going to voluntary audits and irata having an audit system we've entered down to the carabiner numbers in there with cost make model um, tracking all of that replacement cycles gives us budget for replacement and most importantly to my accountant it gives them an absolute rundown to the penny of the amount of gear we have on hand on any given time and when we break stuff they can just get a report at the end of the year and they know how much to write off against our taxes which is pleasurable for us <laughs> yeah so, absolutely Go ahead yeah. a bit on the equipment if you could. Yeah. So what I was going to say, there's a big difference in, you know, people say I need to manage my equipment and they go out looking for an asset management system. And asset management systems are designed for, or warehousing systems are designed for either stock and items moving through. Um, so, you know, their distribution of stuff and stocking it in between, or they're designed for fi finance. So they're designed for accountants um, to, to know. And what they're not designed for and what we specialize in is designing it for readiness. So we, we sort of say, uh, you know, start looking at how ready you are to respond. So you, you add all your equipment by category and kind. So by typing. And then you can pick something like you said, descent, uh, you know, descent devices or ropes, 200 meter ropes or whatever, whatever the, the, the kind of type of equipment is. See where they're all located, see their values, see their life cycle, uh, see their expiry dates. If you combine it with our personnel and training and incident reporting, you can see every time it was used on an event. Um, so, so we're giving a really deep look into every piece of equipment. Um, uh, from a from a viewpoint, and all the views are built around readiness. So, um, once you set up a piece of equipment, so let's take a rope. We add a, a 200 meter rope as a kind of equipment. Every time I add one of those, I can have it automatically uh, attach the model uh, image, so a photograph of it, the manual for that model rope, uh, automatically create the inspection that the number of times you're going to check that rope. Uh, and how often the frequency of those checks or inspections should be. And during an inspection, if you find something that needs action, you can generate a repair and take that rope in or out of service, which affects your readiness status uh, globally effectively within it. So uh, while you're seeing that just in your team, so you can see um, you know, two of 10 ropes are unserviceable. You, if you had a parent organization above you, they'd see two of 100 ropes are un unserviceable. And they can go into all of those different pieces of um, why is the damage occurring? What's the most frequent reason for repair? Um, why is equipment being retired? Um, so we're trying to give all that intelligence around that, you know, like you're saying, the next audit, uh, the next budget cycle, ordering and training, you know, around equipment. No, and that's, uh, I think that's pretty good. And you mentioned it a little bit. We use it now for our rope logs as well. We attach yep. the equipment to our jobs and it's logged on the jobs. It's inspected when it's brought back in and there's an inspection button. So we can go through. We can also ascertain who was the last person to inspect it. Mm -hmm. And I think just to give the listener some view of scope on this, um, we have... Uh, 
1,566 operational items in our equipment category, 27 are currently unserviceable, and the weight of that is just over 7,000 kilograms. I won't get into value, <laughs> <laughs> but it'll give me the value as well. So um, are we going to assign equipment to people as well or to teams or to rig kits? So it's been very useful in that aspect. There's one thing I would say to folks is, You've got to go and do it. You got to do the buy-in. We flirted with equipment for a long time and finally just sat down and said, "Hey, you know what? We need to do this and do it right." And it's uh, it's been great now that we've actually done that and you know dove into it 110 percent because it's. I'm gonna give you some kudos here. Robin is very intuitive. We've got some kids that work in the shop that do a lot of our equipment inspection. You know, students and what have you, and they figure this out faster than us old guys. Um, <laughs> I threw a couple camp gyros into the system the other day and I said, I don't know if I've put them in or not yet. And they're like, yeah, don't worry about it. And I mean, one of them searched by camp, the other one searched by gyro and they both came up with the same answer in about four seconds. <laughs> and I'm like, I would have been looking through rig plates myself <laughs> if so, I put so it there. <laughs> what, what'll be nice for them um, is our new equipment smartphone app is launching in the next um i'm gonna say two to three weeks okay. um, so that'll be android and ios and it uses the camera built into your smartphone or tablet uh to pick up the barcode or qr code on any of these devices um, and it'll bring that item up immediately on screen of the device and you can press change status inspect now add repair um or or look at all its contents as well so for an inventory Oh, wicked. I'll be looking forward to that. Now, yeah, they will certainly uh, do that because I know when they walk in on their weekends and they've come back and, you know, we've had six kits out at, you know, wherever. The stuff's half of it's covered in poo from being on a wastewater treatment plant. Half of it's covered in silica from drilling into concrete. And they just look and they're like, really? <laughs> <laughs> so um, one of the other things I guess we'll chat about real quick with the D4H is um the events and the operations kind of tab which is events yeah. training and incidents um we use them quite extensively just so people can understand the scope i mean if you're looking at a volunteer SAR team you're running 100 calls a year you're thinking hey you know i've got a thousand is this going to work we run every project we do at ronin through this device or through this software so every single thing we do, if we have an incident, we have to respond to it's added. But every job we do, we label as an event. We assign equipment and staff to it. Um, notes are added to it. Um, yeah, so I mean, as far as robustness goes, we have quite a, a fair number of events into this thing on any given day. And from a project management tool, it works very well. I mean... Our guys can go in there. They can see when they're working. Our project managers can talk to that team directly. They can ascertain where gear is. They can update notes on the go for those folks that are out there. Uh, email them directly on that team that's on that site that specific day. So it's pretty robust that we found with it. Um, we can also add custom pieces into it. We're a veteran-centric organization, and we have a lot of questions for instance from veterans affairs about how many vets we employ so 
we've added into our membership a customized box that has to be filled out when the person's brought in as to whether or not they're a veteran in which armed services uh, they served in. And we can pull a report of that at the end of the year when we get asked by, like, um, you know, Minister of Veterans Affairs for different events, you know, how many people have you employed from what countries? We can just, yeah, boom, it's this and this. So it provides us with some unique opportunities there that probably weren't even envisioned when this thing was started. But uh, I'll turn that over to you to put some comments down. Right yeah, on. for sure. So um, what you're talking about there, you know, the ability to schedule activities in advance. So events, training drills, exercises, everything can be scheduled out. You can request people to attend. Uh, they get a personalized calendar of what their training program is. And then post-incident, we've also got the ability to log an incident report. So these are reports that you'd sit down at your desk and write a, a fairly detailed report up and uh, tag that incident with your capabilities used, equipment used, external resources used, who attended, who was absent, who responded to a pager and who didn't. It, it, it gives you all of that stats, trend analysis, looking for patterns in what the type of in, what incidents coming next year. Uh, now. That led us, you know, people started using that to actually run an incident and they were filling in their paperwork in the software mid-incident. And we saw an opportunity for a product called Incident Management, which helps them actually in real time do it. So we started, we built a completely, completely new technology platform, a real-time platform for incident management that really helps you coordinate an effective response to a situation. So taking an incident management team, so you've got your operations chief, logistics, welfare, planning, intelligence, um, all of these roles reporting up to the IC, and we're helping them fill in all the paperwork, forms, checklists and tasks, log entries, mapping, and status boards um, for an incident. And the platform we built is really is truly real time. If you've used Google Docs and you've shared a spreadsheet or uh, a Word document in Google Docs, and you can see the other person's cursor and as they're typing, that's what this feels like with your ICS paperwork or your status boards. So you can project anything up on a wall, on a monitor, and it updates in real time as people are working through the incident. So we'll, we'll step them through things like defining the situation, filling in that sit rep, their roles, assigning people to those roles, so filling in their resources. Um, and, and then collecting data from in the field using mobile apps to do damage assessments, uh, coordinate shelter numbers, mass casualty incidents, closing, closing roads, you know, all this data that's flying at these guys during an incident. And we're trying to help them structure it and visualize it. You know, and it's, it's interesting that you've gone that way and having run some fairly large incidents, you know, 42 mass cas those types of things myself. It's what was required in my dad's day of firefighting. And he tells stories where they dropped bodies off at the hospital and left them in the corner. Like we're yeah. talking the early 60s, like nobody cared. Or if anybody did, nobody said anything. To nowadays where, I mean, I've got to account for every single where these 42 people went, which hospital, of course, one hospital can't take 42, so they get spread over five. Um, you know, and it's, it's certainly... I guess just today's society demands that much more accountability and responsibility mm. from its emergency services. And it's when you're on a scene writing on a whiteboard and you've got all this going on. And at the end, when you go back to the the station and you're trying to, who did I have do that again? <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. Interesting. 
we we also have like, quite a lot of um, a lot of HEMS providers, so helicopter emergency medical services, and we've actually got some about seven commercial airlines using this as well. And so they they'd be using it in the case of you know worst case scenario is an airline crash um, where you end up, but it it could be like significant delays, it could be a bird strike, it could be a grounded plane blocking your runway. These these incidents where you're taking a board or a group of people executives who now are suddenly having to be incident managers. And so they're looking to public safety tools saying, what do we do when this happens? Um, and we're able to help them step through that process um, to, to have an effective response. That's interesting. In a previous life, um, I used to do some work teaching executives um, for a company that did K&R work, Kidnap and Ransom. Mm-hmm. And uh, there'd be a lot of that where, you know, these are major, major global corporations that would put uh, emergency management into play as they've gotten executives or even team members kidnapped in certain areas in the world and what that you know response looked like from them and uh, I was quite intrigued to see you know the corporate world doing that coming from a military and emergency services background stuff that we'd been doing in those areas for a long time that the corporate world was starting to pick that up in order to you know also respond to these incidents and these issues this is a big trend um where, where, I mean, and it, it, it's brought on, I have to say, a lot of it is, there's, there's two pieces. One, one is the world is changing in terms of threats. So, you you know, you're looking at that active shooter, the chemical attack, the, you know, all these threats that are suddenly feel with terrorism, very real to corporations that they're going to impact profits. Um, and the other piece is that they, uh, weather events. So, you know, these are just the large flood, the large storm, and um, these things are taking out corporations uh, and really impacting profits. And so they're hiring retired um, public safety people to run these incidents for them as an incident commander when they occur. And it, it's a fascinating trend. Um, we've seen it just year on year on year getting stronger and stronger. And they're looking at public safety and saying, um, what can we take from this best practice? Well, there you go. For everybody listening that's close to retirement, you got yourself a second job. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, is there anything else that I've missed that you want to add in about uh, D4H, Robin? No, I'd, I'd just say that, um, you know, that the whole company comes from a background of being involved in this, where um, you know, we, we really built this for ourselves. Um, and it's it, it's why it's ended up a great tool that we're passionate about. Um we love just talking to people like this, hearing about other rescue services or emergency response or uh, or any crisis response, really, and understanding it and seeing how the software can be used to help that. Um, so just just really delighted to talk to anybody about it um, who who's interested in seeing it, how it, it applies to their situation. Yeah, and I'm, like I said, we'll give you all the kudos in the world. We've been using it for a number of years. I couldn't even guess now. Um, is before we bought Ronan back out from our previous company. So it's been a, probably seven or eight years and um, it's been a good tool for us. So thank you for that. No problem at all. All right. Um, we'll chat later. Thanks a lot for being on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you. Good to talk.